hope you open with me your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. On house visitation, I usually would conclude the meeting with saying, if there's ever a passage you would like me to read from or a, a book to take a sermons from, let me know. And a member said, yes, please, the book of Isaiah. And once before, when I referred to a part of this verse, our text tonight, the booth in a cucumber field, someone said, where in the world did you get that phrase? It's good for us to know the Old Testament because it shows us the Christ. So, if you'll take your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 1, and we're only going to read the first nine verses. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now our text. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless the reading and the preaching of it. The book of Isaiah has a large place there in the Old Testament canon of Scripture. And its significance, other than the book of Psalms, and second only to the Psalms, Isaiah is quoted over and over in the New Testament by Jesus, 
and by the apostles. All in support of the gospel of grace. In fact, Isaiah is quoted more times than all the other prophets put together. Isaiah speaks about Christ, the coming of Christ. One thinks of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the sign that is given unto Ahaz, the virgin that shall conceive and bear a son. Or one thinks about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a son is given, is born, and all of his names, Emmanuel. Or one thinks of Isaiah chapter 53, where we have that beautiful description of the perfect servant of Jehovah and the suffering that he endures not only by men, but at the hands of God in your and my places. Yes, Isaiah speaks about Christ, his coming, and that implies the judgment of this wicked world that rebels against him, but it also implies the salvation of the daughter of Zion, the church of Jesus Christ. The name Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. And that is the theme, isn't it, of the entire prophecy. Little is known about this prophet personally, except we read here that he is the son of Amos. That's not Amos the prophet, but Amos. And it appears that he probably was of royal descent because he sure has easy access to the royal line, to the king's. We know that he is married to the prophetess, and that word prophetess does not mean now that she was a prophet, but rather it means that she was the wife of a prophet, and they had two boys. And the names of those boys have a meaning of a remnant shall return. How beautiful that is with the whole theme of finally the captivity in Babylon. A remnant shall return. And the second one is, hastening is the booty, or speeding is the prey. Unlike many modern commentators, I believe, and the Bible shows us also, that Isaiah is the sole human author of this entire book. He was probably a prophet in Israel for some 50 or even 60 years A prophecy, a work, a ministry that began in the last years of King Uzziah and continued until somewhere during King Hezekiah's reign. It was during that time that the kingdom, which was divided sinfully earlier, that the northern tribes are taken away. And the Lord in his grace had sent prophets to the ten tribes to warn them of their sin, calling them to repentance, but they would not. And now Isaiah is the first prophet to be commissioned by God to speak to the nation of Judah because Judah is following in the steps of her sister, the northern ten tribes. 
Why is it important that Isaiah is commissioned by God to speak? Well, first of all, it indicates the degree to which Judah's apostasy had progressed. They were becoming very little different from the northern kingdom. But it also indicates God's love and grace toward his people in revealing that their ultimate salvation is in their God, speaking to them for many years through the prophet. So we read in verse 1, the vision, it's one vision really, although there's different parts in that vision, but there's one vision, just like the book of Revelation. Sometimes you hear folks saying, Revelations. No, there was one revelation given to John on the island of Patmos. There is a vision given to Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then are mentioned the four reigns of the kings during that time. Prophecy is there to the southern kingdom, although it was also heard by many that were still in Israel also. Judah here is the people of God, while Israel, which had rejected the throne of David and therefore had rejected the Messiah, is not. It was in the way of their sin of idolatry and in the way of their opposition to Judah and to Jerusalem that Israel has historically become the reprobate and ripe for judgment. They are brought into a captivity that they will never again return to as a group. Judah is the people of God the nation that dwells in the promised land in fellowship with and under the blessing of Jehovah. And the capital of Judah, boys and girls, you remember from catechism, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is the city of the Lord, it's the place of the royal throne of David. It is the place where the temple of God was built and God was pleased to dwell in the midst of his people. That royal throne of David in Jerusalem is the throne from which our Lord Jesus Christ would also come according to God's promise. So Judah and Jerusalem, that is to whom Isaiah is called to speak, represent God's elect people, the cause of God's kingdom and God's covenant here in the world. Chapter 1 has really three themes in it. There is, first of all, the theme of sin and apostasy. Second of all, there is the theme of judgment on the wicked. And thirdly, there is the theme of the redemption of the faithful covenant people. The faithful remnant. And the one purpose of this prophecy is finally to bring comfort for the church as a remnant. Comfort when the majority are ungodly. And when that ungodly chaff 
cause the church to go under or down to defeat. Comfort. Comfort ye my people. So that's my theme, the comfort of the church as a remnant. Notice with me, first of all, the pictures painted by the prophet in verse 8. Second of all, the cause for the desolation, beginning in verse 2 already. And then thirdly, the wonderful faithfulness of God. Notice, first of all, the pictures painted in verse 8. And yes, the text is figurative. We read there, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The prophet is using a lot of threes in order to emphasize the truth. So he gives different names to it. So there he has three different pictures of God's people. Just as in verse 4, if you look at it, there is also a bunch of threes. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corrupters. And then another three. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. That kind of emphasis by heaping one upon another. You'll find Amos does the same thing in his prophecy. For the sins of three or of four, he says. So let's look at those three. In a cottage, in a vineyard, a lodge, in a garden of cucumbers, a besieged city. Those are very closely related figures. A vineyard in Isaiah's day would be watched and guarded in order to keep it from damage or theft, especially when the fruit was becoming ripe, ready for gathering. Kind of like a couple weeks ago, it was the strawberries that everyone was getting out of the fields, and right now the blueberries. Well, when the vineyards were getting ripe, it was important to have a guard there on the premises watching day and night. Or, <coughs> second of all, a cucumber garden would be guarded, would be watched throughout the growing season. So someone would be left there to carefully guard these. They'd have to live there. They'd have to stay there. And now our text speaks about a cottage and a lodge. Those two terms in our King James Version are kind of misleading. You rent a cottage for a week. Maybe it's a beautiful place on the lake. Or perhaps it's a cute place in the valleys of Switzerland. Or take the other word, a lodge. You can go to a hunting lodge or perhaps during winter to a ski lodge. Comfortable places, large, maybe even imposing. Who wouldn't like a cottage or a lodge? But that, that is not the idea of the text. Let me read that a moment from the New King James Version. 
And we read there, so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. A booth, a hut, a besieged city. The words booth and hut are synonymous. What it's picturing there is a very small, temporary booth or hut. In fact, the Hebrew word there that is used, and it's translated cottage in our King James, is the same word that is used for during the Feast of Tabernacles, Boys and girls, perhaps you remember during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews were called upon to make up little huts out of palm branches on their rooftops. And for the fe- uh, that week of Feast of Tabernacles, they would huddle underneath that little and flimsy hut. Only temporary, just for that week of Tabernacles, and the leaves start drying out and they get rid of them again. So the meaning of these two terms now translated as cottage and lodge is really essentially the same. And the lodge, or that second word, is even more flimsy than the first one. It can even mean just a temporary hammock. A hammock tied between a couple trees. Not hot at all. And the watchman who is in charge of watching and guarding the vineyard, a guard puts up that temporary place to give him shelter from the rain and from the sunshine as long as he's employed there. So that's the first main picture they're tied together. A booth or a hut. And then our text does speak about a besieged city. Oh, what a terrible picture that is. Jerusalem was that besieged city twice in Isaiah's day. First of all, during King Ahaz, when Israel and Syria came against him and besieged him, and he wouldn't ask for help. The Lord says, I'll give you a sign. I'm going to save you. Later on, Jerusalem is again besieged, this time by Assyria. When King Hezekiah brings the letter from the king and from the cruel guard over the army before the Lord. Besieged city means hunger, starvation, lack of water, surrounded, no one to help them. So we have a booth a hut, a besieged city, and that is God's elect church. Look at the significance of these. It points to something, first of all, that is very small, rather lonely, forsaken, and really altogether insignificant. Who could possibly live in those things very long? A temporary structure, very flimsy. And that besieged city pictures something that is very helpless. It's unlike a fortress. No 
significant protection against wind or storms or enemies. That besieged city is kind of isolated from everyone else, surrounded by the enemy, not strong enough to throw away the foe, and so they sit there starving. To all appearances, it looks like the citizens of that city are cut off from any help. No access to supplies or arms, no reinforcements can reach it. And it's only a matter of time before the foe finally is able to starve them out or climb over the walls and bring down the whole city. And those things now are applied to the daughter of Zion standing there in the midst of her enemies, in the midst of a desolate countryside of Israel. Everything is desolated. Many of the cities have already been destroyed, but Jerusalem is still standing. The prophet Isaiah here is looking at Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem organically that is he's looking at them together as a whole with all of its citizens there and in Jerusalem there's still that remnant a remnant a very small remnant and for the sake of that remnant Zion still stands and how is it and that's where verse 9 comes in except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We would have been as Sodom, and we would have been like unto Gomorrah. What keeps Jerusalem from being completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed is that God has a remnant there for And that has to be applied now to the church of all ages. For we live in dangerous times, don't we? And it especially applies to the church during great times of stress. These times when the northern tribes were taken away because of their sin and apostasy. And which Assyria is coming against and has taken much of the land. It is, later on, the early church in the time of Nero. And go through history, it's later on the time of the Great Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church was persecuting those who brought the true word of God and God breaks through with a remnant calling them out. And we can look at our own church history A small few, three churches were cast out of the mother church. Or we can look at the 1950s in our own church history when more than half of our churches and pastors left. And we can look at today when the church, our churches, have been rent by schism, families and Husbands and wives torn apart from each other in faith. And a church torn by abuse that has been taking place in the church. And now a lack of pastors for the churches. Great stress. 
while the false church is trampled and desolated by God, there is a remnant separated out or cast out. Is the prophet now speaking about his own time or is he talking about the church in the future? What does he mean? except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been a Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. He's talking about reformation. Reformation that was brought by godly kings in Israel. Hezekiah is one of those great reformers. Or later on, reformation brought by the priest. You think of Ezra the scribe who comes to the remnant when they come back from Babylon. And yet during those times the chaff, that is the wicked, seem to be in control and in majority multiplying. This word of God is spoken during the time of King Ahaz. What wicked priests there were, what a wicked king there was, he would not seek the Lord's sign, and he would not ask the Lord for help. Instead, he wanted to trust Assyria. And so, the northern kingdoms and Syria comes against him, and the city is besieged. Later on, Hezekiah, first pays tribute to Assyria. But finally, when he refuses, then Assyria comes against the land, desolates much of the land, and now surrounds the city. And Hezekiah prays, unless the Lord had kept. Oh, he did, then. Boys and girls, do you remember what happened when the Assyrians were around Jerusalem and Hezekiah prays to the Lord? And we read, the angel of the Lord came down and he slew 185,000 of the enemy. The Lord kept for himself a remnant. And that goes on into the future, as we mentioned, through the whole New Testament era, persecution by the Jews and then by Rome, persecution later on during the time of the Reformation, even into our own churches. The church, a very small remnant, in herself weak and helpless and even sinful. Why does the Lord allow this to happen to his church? The northern ten tribes were the people of God along with Judah and yet they split away, they separated and they finally are taken away and never return again. Why does the Lord allow this to happen to Judah and Benjamin and part of Simeon and to Jerusalem? What is the cause of this desolation that's taking place? And it's a spiritual cause. It is the wickedness 
of Judah, following the wickedness of Israel. It is the wickedness of the church, Old Testament, New Testament, the wickedness. You got your Bibles open. Notice verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Parents here, some of you, you know that anguish, don't you? You brought up children in your home. You brought them to the Christian school. You prayed for them, and there are those who say, I don't want it, who leave the church. Do you know the anguish that you feel? Do you hear that anguish in the Lord's voice? He's talking now here again organically. He's talking about the church as a whole in that time was walking in sin and rebellion, refusing God, but choosing instead the nations around them to help them. These children have been nourished and have been brought up, and then worse, in the majority, they're worse than an ox or an ass. Verse 3. For the ox and the ass, we read, knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. They know who feed him. But those who are supposed to be God's people are dumber than an ox or an ass. God has cared for them. In the land of Egypt, bringing them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, giving them all those blessings. And then verse 3, you've got those multitudes again, don't you? Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They are gone away backward. The situation appeared hopeless. Time after time after time, God has stricken them and smitten them and chastised them with other nations. But they go from bad to worse. How bad? How bad? Verse 5 and 6. Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head. There's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Can you imagine the stink of those sores? If any of you have had kind of a sore and gets infected or so, it stinks. Maybe an animal you've had around. And that is now spiritually the condition of the church of that time. And because of that iniquity, there comes then these judgments on the church and destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now when we read here, like unto Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 9, it's not that homosexuality was being promoted there in the Old Testament church. But it surely was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and we might want to speak there about the church today, because now those sins are included in the churches and even lesbians being made office bearers in the church. How low, how low is that sin bringing the church today? Look all around us in the church world, whether it be the Methodist denomination breaking up or reform denominations breaking up over that issue they want to tolerate that kind of sin in the church. They want to welcome those kind of people as members and even leaders in the church. Yes, the church, the covenant people, the daughter of Zion is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. How is that possible to say about the church? Where is the picture of the church which you have in Psalm 48 or in Psalm 84, the beautiful palaces and the walls, the ramparts. Sin. And in verse 2 we read, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord is calling on the heavens and the earth to witness what has taken place and what he is saying about his church. Why? Why heaven and earth? Because it was part of the Lord's nourishing and upbringing of his children. Think of it. When God's people were there in Egypt, they saw the plagues that came upon the wicked, the wonders that the Lord did there in that land to redeem them. And when they were running out of Egypt and all of a sudden they come to the sea and the Pharaoh and his host is behind them and there's mountains on both sides, God opens up the Red Sea for them and they walk through on dry ground, heaven and earth. And what about their pilgrimage for 40 years through the wilderness? Was there not bread from heaven and was there not water out of the rock? Heaven and earth. God led his people by the angel of the Lord. And the sun, the moon, and the stars are called upon by God to fight on their behalf. And think of the wonders they saw there in Canaan where they march around a city for seven days and the walls come tumbling down. All creation, heaven and earth, testifies of God's wonderful provisions for his people. And they don't want to acknowledge him. Again, what is the cause for that terrible desolation and the terrible spiritual wickedness of Judah? The wickedness of the church? They are right. For the ultimate and final judgment. Many times in history, don't the nations come close to what it was in the days of Noah? 
what is holding God back from again wiping out the earth and all in it, except that remnant. That terrible wickedness of the church is pictured in verses 10 through 15, their kind of worship of God. And I didn't read that because that will be the topic, the Lord willing, next Sunday. But the situation in the church was hopeless. And oh, if the things that are said there of the church today, what kind of church would that be? Would it be the church of Laodicea, who was lukewarm? Or Sardis? Isaiah in vision is given to see that wickedness and therefore the judgment that is coming in the future. Judgment that was fulfilled during the time of Ahaz and then in Hezekiah. And yet the vision stretches out further in the future. So that finally, not only the northern tribe, but also Judah is carried away into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And yes, after 70 years, they're able to return again under Cyrus. But the daughter of Zion really didn't amount to much, did they? Just a booth in a vineyard and a hut in a garden of cucumbers. And perhaps you say, what is about cucumbers? Do you remember, boys and girls, that when the Israelites were in the wilderness being fed with bread from heaven, they were lusting for the onions and the leeks and the cucumbers of Egypt. They were lusting for the pleasures of this world. Here is this little booth in the midst of that lusting for the things of the world. Never again do they have power. And finally they are destroyed in A.D. 70 by Rome because they had rejected the Christ. And now this desolation that we read about, is that the destruction for all of the church? As I said before, God is here talking about the church organically as one organism. When the pastor addresses you on Sunday morning, he says, Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is treating the church organically. He doesn't say, You who are believers, and some of you other rascals that are reprobates here, no. He comes with the word of God organically to the church gathered. And so the word of God is now treating God's church at that time, so much of it filled with apostasy and sin. One organism. And Isaiah even includes himself, doesn't he? Because you'll read in verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us, a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel was God's church. 
split by the rebellion of the northern tribes. Reformation brought over and over and over again by a godly Jehoshaphat or Asa or Hezekiah or Josiah. The church is addressed as a whole for good, but also for evil. And even the remnant is guilty. The remnant is guilty for not witnessing as they should have, but at times remaining silent. Oh, we don't want to bring criticism on others or ourselves. The remnant at times is sleeping instead of being awake. Or even the carnal are working with the lack or should I say the elect are working with the carnal didn't King Jehoshaphat join King Ahab and he says oh we're brothers yes let's go together to war wasn't Hezekiah also depending upon Assyria for a while You see, the remnant is also co-responsible for the apostasy in the church. Not only true in the Old Testament for the church today, there is that twofold element in the church. There is the carnal and the remnant, the elect. Elect by God's grace. And many, many times the carnal have the upper hand And the elect are like that small little flimsy booth or hut in a garden of cucumbers. And you and I might say, is there any hope for the church? Look how we've been split again. Look at the lack of pastors. Look at the sin that is within us. Is it hopeless for the church? And that brings me to the third point. The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to preserve for himself a people. You see, attention is now pointed to, is directed to the part which the Lord has played. He has kept a remnant in existence. Otherwise, there would have been total destruction. So notice with me the faithfulness of God. I said the word of God comes here, and that's the title of my sermon, isn't it? The comfort of the church as a remnant. What comfort is that? Is that the way to comfort the remnant? That they are small, that they are weak, that they are flimsy, that of themselves is almost hopeless? In fact, of themselves, it is hopeless. A little booth, a little hut. Or verse 9, a very small remnant. Wow, hasn't he said enough in verse 8? How small it is, but verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Forgotten, hopeless, forsaken, very weak. A scraping of a survivor. 
And it looks like the future's hopeless. It's getting darker and darker in the world and in the church world also. But there is a remnant that is not destroyed. Which is the only thing that prevents the church from being like Sodom and Gomorrah. That kernel, that scraping of a survivor, the divine exception in our text is always the way that the church is preserved to the very end till Jesus comes again. Isn't it the Lord that saved Jerusalem when the Assyrians are around them and they were starving? the angel of the Lord which is the Old Testament prefiguration of Christ Jesus that slays the 185,000 of the enemy and Hezekiah and Jerusalem are saved so as I said attention is now directed to the part which the Lord has played for salvation beloved salvation And preservation is not the work of man. Our help is not in ourselves. And our help is not some kind of great preacher or reformer or evangelist. It is the work of Jehovah of hosts. He has kept and he is keeping a remnant in existence. Otherwise it would be total destruction and Christ would never have come for it is through the remnant in the fullness of time that God purposed to bring our redeemer here in the world the redeemer that suffered and died for all of our sins so that we could be pardoned and not destroyed that deliverance That salvation is due to God. We have here, beloved, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through Christ Jesus alone. Notice the words in our text, except out of the general ruin of the whole nation, the Lord has by his grace rescued his people. And from that preserved group, the Redeemer will come. Notice, except the Lord, and that word Lord is in all capital letters, and boys and girls, you've learned in in catechism, haven't you, that when the Lord is written in all capital letters here in our King James, it's the covenant name of God, Jehovah. It's the covenant name of God, God who has made a relationship with his people and never breaks it even though they violate it day and night. The covenant of grace. It's the grace that saves. And that covenant God is the Lord of hosts. Not only the angels, but all things created, even wicked men, serve his purpose because he's the sovereign Lord. He is sovereign over all peoples. He's sovereign over all creatures. And all of them will do his bidding. 
and all of them will work by him for our good and for our salvation. God has that power over it. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us. Yes, Isaiah includes himself in that, and may you and I tonight include ourselves. By God's grace, he chose us in eternity. He placed us in the church. It is his grace that preserves us so that we don't fall away. A remnant. Those who are survivors escaping the general destruction of the false church. Very small. Yes, very small. Like unto Sodom and Gomorrah with a big exception. They were completely destroyed, but the church is not. There is that remnant preserved. And that day, to the coming of Christ, but also in the New Testament church, and that remnant continues until Jesus comes again. We don't deserve to be spared. It's all by grace. The church preserved in God's remnant. There is no power that can still his hand. There is no power that can accomplish something against him. The booth in a vineyard, the hut in a cucumber field is absolutely safe. Take comfort in that. Don't be afraid to dwell in that little hut. Never exchange that little hut for all the palaces and the fortresses and big churches in the world. That is what many pastors and folks did in the 1950s, didn't they? They wanted the church to expand by evangelism in Canada, and they were willing to compromise on the doctrine of the covenant. They wanted to be big, and they gave up the covenant. Booth in a vineyard, a hut in the cucumber field. Jehovah God is your preserver and protector. And soon all the fortresses of the world, of the wicked, will be totally as Sodom and Gomorrah. But that little booth in the Garden of Cucumbers will be changed into the everlasting tabernacle of God. Christ is in her and with her. How comforting. Isn't it wonderful? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for that comfort that the prophet Isaiah was able to give to that small remnant of believers in the Old Testament church. And we thank thee for that comfort still today. Even though we, even as the elect, the remnant, deserve also destruction because of our sins, Christ took it. And we are spared and we are preserved. O oh Lord, preserve us and our children and our children's children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.